And now, it's time for Grey Matters. Welcome to Gray Matters, your weekly media analysis, current events, and commentary program. My name is Jim Dwyer, and I'll be hosting the program tonight. Uh, 
no real uh, immediate brain damage awards off the bat. Uh, so we'll just get straight into uh, the heart of today's program. Uh, nice to have a rainy day. I know uh, some people uh, find it a wasted day when it uh, sort of all day rain. I find these days quite refreshing and lovely, and uh, hopefully you've enjoyed it as well. We haven't had one of these in a while, and we're long overdue, so I'm sure most of us are appreciating this nice weather. It's going to be sunny later in the week anyway, so uh, as summers go, from my personal standpoint, this has been an excellent one weather-wise. Low humidity, not too many super hot days, and uh, whether it's vortex-related, quote-unquote, or simply because the Great Lakes... Uh, that surround the state of Michigan uh, were so completely frozen this last winter that temperatures remained cool. We we may never know. So many variables in the weather. But uh, I've been enjoying it. I hope you have too. Of course, summer is nearly at an end. Before you know it, the students will be moving back into uh, town for another academic year. And uh, before the academic calendar even begins, the money-making machine that is U of M football will be uh, back at it as well. And I guess congratulations to a fairly successful event with the uh, uh, soccer game that uh, took place at Michigan Stadium a week or so, a little over a week ago. Uh setting another record it's obviously one of the larger stadiums perhaps the largest stadium i believe actually in north america and so uh, any sporting event that occurs there will set some sort of attendance record as the nhl's winter classic did in uh, january 1st and this uh, football game football game not american football which uh, i predict in 12 years american football will be uh, uh, still a spectacle sport but a very different sport than the one we know today. I think the uh, schools are going to find it very costly to continue to fund uh, athletic programs uh, in public schools. And uh, a lot of parents are increasingly concerned about the uh, concussion and uh, other head injuries that uh, result from contact sports such as football. That uh, the talent pool is going to begin to diminish uh, pretty seriously in the next uh, five to ten years, and we'll see how that leaves the whole system. Uh, that's a, another topic for another day. Uh, we'll just get uh, to more substantive things for now. Just a few quick observations there. So uh, brace yourselves, in other words, for the uh, oncoming, incoming of mass humanity back to the streets of Ann Arbor. That little quiet moment uh, between art fair and move-in is just about done. Well, uh, thankfully, there has been another ceasefire, temporary truce uh, in the uh, Gaza situation. Very interesting article. In the online edition of the New York Times, I could not find this in today's uh, hard copy, uh, but by Jody uh, Rudoran in the online edition of the New York Times entitled Palestinians Revive Dream of a Gaza Seaport. And I'm not going to uh, really dip too much into this article other than to say that this is a project uh, that 
was proposed years ago, uh, and it, in fact was first promised back in 93 when the Oslo Accords, uh, one of the few good things that came out of the first Gulf War, and to his credit, uh, President H.W. Bush actually held Israel's feet to the fire on that and held back some funding in order to force them to come to the table to negotiate with Yasser Arafat at that time and Fatah, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Of course, as I've mentioned before, Israel uh, resented the fact that they uh, actually had to treat a group that they considered merely uh, a terrorist army and not an actual representatives of a subject people. Uh, so through some uh, backdoor funding, ha Hamas begins to rise, and now Hamas is, oh, we can't deal with them, we can't deal with them. Well, if you'd made the deal with the PLO back in 93, Hamas wouldn't be doing this, what they're doing now. And so anyway, this idea of a seaport for Gaza is an important one. It's something that has backing from Europe, from Egypt. Uh, the United Nations is willing to throw some money towards this. Uh, part of the reason that uh, Hamas militants are shooting rockets into Israel is because they are economically uh, besieged. They are physically uh, captured. I mean, there is no in and out of Gaza. There's people with family members in the West Bank or Jerusalem. They can't go see them. Uh, it's difficult for people to get out of Gaza to get medical attention. Uh, if you do get out, you can't get back in. Uh, and economically, it's just uh, it's a dead zone. And so the idea that uh, a seaport could be built, uh, the price tag, it's according to this article, would top $100 million. Uh, the money has been available. The plans have been drawn up. Uh, it's simply a matter of uh, allowing it to happen. And, of course, uh, Israel's complaint is, well, if they build a seaport, then they're going to bring weapons in. Well, Israel brings in weapons through their seaports, so this is the right of a sovereign state to protect and defend itself. And here we come to the crucial question that really is at the heart of the uh, Israeli soul as a nation. If a nation can be said to have a soul, uh, they need to decide somewhat quickly, are they going to remain an exclusivist uh, apartheid-style quasi-democracy, or will there be a movement towards a binational secular state? Well, that's probably not very likely. Uh, even negotiating a truce uh, renders Netanyahu vulnerable to right-wing uh, critiques from within the Israeli government itself, and so he doesn't want to do that at all. Uh, but, okay, well, if you don't want a binational secular state, then you're going to have to allow a Palestinian state to exist, and you're going to have to allow a state to enjoy the same accoutrements that other states do. They have access to the sea. They should be allowed to build a seaport. Uh, maybe if you allowed goods and services to flow freely, uh, which is supposedly the great American vision of the world is for free trade and so forth, then Israel will have to let... The Palestinian state, when it is officially uh, permanently declared, uh, be an actual state. Um, so this is really a question for uh, Israel's citizens. Uh, how are we going to exist as a state? Are we really going to have uh, separate license plates for people based on uh, ethnic uh, identity? Or are we all going to be citizens of the same state?
Well, that's a question we can't resolve today, but I would encourage you to take a look at this article uh, in today's uh, online edition of the New York Times, Palestinians Revived Dream of a Gaza Seaport uh, by Jody Rudoran. I would like to uh, shift gears into something that will affect uh, future elections here in this country. Of course, we've had local primaries uh, recently nationwide. Uh, a lot of you know now we know which Democratic candidate will run unopposed for Ann Arbor's mayor. I don't think there is a Republican candidate at all. Uh, maybe one will emerge. Maybe one has. I really haven't paid that close attention to it since the primary vote. But uh, there was a film at the Michigan Theater a couple weeks back called Citizen Coke. And it's about the Koch brothers. K-O-C-H. Koch. 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 However you wish to say it. Coke is how it's generally said. And uh, there's a nice article in the uh, new edition of the Progressive magazine. It's their summer double issue, July, August 2014. It's the robber baron issue with a great tentacled top hat on the uh, cover. Attack of the Plutocrats. And although we all like to believe that, you know, in America, everyone has a vote and uh, everyone has a chance. Many of us know that this is, in fact, uh, in some ways, a form of ideological Kool-Aid. Those of us with uh, certain privileges and advantages have uh, more access to uh, opportunities to advance ourselves than others. Some will never have access to these opportunities. And then there are that very select few who are actively seeking ways to decrease the number of people who can actually advance themselves. Uh, by the way, if you're uh, somebody who enjoys uh, the Netflix system, you should probably be aware that the owner of Netflix is a heavy spender uh, to advance the agenda of uh, corporate schools and charter schools and to defund public schools. Now, whatever your feelings are about that, you should at least be aware of it. Uh, while it's, you know, Netflix is a, is a fine and wonderful service, um, your money is uh, being used uh, to advance things that you may not agree with. Well, anyway, in this uh, edition of the Progressive magazine, Lisa Graves has written an article entitled The Coke Cartel, Their Reach, Their Reactionary Agenda, and Their Record. I want to dip into a big chunk of this article because it uh, touches on a subject that I did a lot of research uh, on as an undergrad into the history of uh, right-wing organizations and movements in the United States, particularly the John Birch Society, <clears throat> which, you know, was something of a joke by the time. You know, I was born in 63, and uh, there were routinely jokes about the John Birch Society, and it always seemed like a fairly ridiculous uh, organization. Um, and the more I found out about them, indeed, in some ways, the more ridiculous uh, they became. But at the same time, it was uh, an organization that had a surprising degree of power. And when you look at the way the Tea Party has uh, rolled what they claim to be their agenda, their populist agenda, it, they're really advancing the ideas of the John Birch Society. You know, getting rid of public schools, getting rid of unions. And we can see how this uh, 
these organizations that claim to be populist are in fact uh, you know false fronts they're uh, stalking horses uh, pantomime horses if you will uh, no offense to uh, Secretariat there who is a real genuine uh, pantomime horse but uh, fake organizations that uh, encourage people to get politically active really to uh, defeat their own best interests uh, I'm sure that most of the people who are at the Tea Party rallies are not college graduates and uh, have less chance of advancing themselves than others might. And yet they espouse these uh, ideologies, which are sort of, it's all paid for by these big wheelers like the Coke cartel. So here is what uh, Lisa Graves, uh, Graves has to say in her article. She writes, you'd have to spend $113.4 million a day every day for an entire year to spend down the net worth of just one of the infamous Koch brothers, Charles and David. Just one half hour at that rate is more than most Americans make in an entire lifetime of work. For those who consider themselves exceptionally talented, lucky, or good-looking, $113 million is more in a day than movie star Leonardo DiCaprio made as the highest-paid Hollywood actor, last year. With that amount, you could buy 4,500 Ford F-150 pickup trucks every day, but where would you park them? Or with two or three days pay at that rate, you could try to buy the White House and the majority in Congress. And to cover all your bases, buy access to judges by subsidizing exclusive trips to fancy resorts to persuade them of your point of view. But that wouldn't even make a dent in your net worth if you were a Coke. Fortunately for the Koch brothers, it costs far less to underwrite the remaking of our political and judicial system to reflect their deeply distorted view of America than to spend even a week of their combined net worth of $82.8 billion. Unfortunately, a political propaganda... Excuse me. Unfortunately, political propaganda is a relatively cheap commodity, far cheaper than the oil and gas, paper and plastics, and fertilizer and futures that their company, Coke Industries, sells. Last year, its estimated revenues were, drum roll please, $115,000 million billion. That's right, $115 billion. That's more revenue than many of the too big to fail firms made, such as J.P. Morgan, Chase, uh, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, or Goldman Sachs. Only Exxon and a few other global firms made more money. $115 billion is more than the annual sales of all the Pepsi and Coke products in every grocery store, fast food joint, restaurant, and bar worldwide. Together, Charles and David own more than 80% of the stock in their global megacorporation, which is the second richest privately held company in the United States. That's why they're currently tied for sixth place among the richest people on our entire planet. Five other guys on this globe have accumulated more than them, but combining the Koch's wealth would make them co-kings, the very richest perhaps in the history of the world. Plus, unlike Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, who each have more, Charles and David are a two-headed monster in their vast business, political, and ideological ambitions. Forget the 1%. The Koch brothers are the point oh 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 two percent That's seven zeros. Their wealth is almost unimaginable. 
nearly everyone else living today is the 99.9999998%. And as it turns out, influencing politicians and judges doesn't cost that much when you're a multi-billionaire. It costs about as much to personally fuel the core groups in their right-wing infrastructure for a, a year as it costs David Koch to donate an entire building or two, like an opulent theater to support the performing arts. In giant letters, David Koch's name is engraved above the New York City Ballet and New York City Opera. If we're not careful, his name and his brothers will be engraved in larger lettering above the United States of America, although it would be a very different version of our country. Quote, it was only in the past decade that I realized the need to also engage in the political process, close quote. Charles Koch wrote in the Wall Street Journal this spring, that's a lie. His engagement in the political process was not born yesterday or even 10 years ago. In 1961, at the age of 26, Charles moved home to Wichita, Kansas, to work for Rock Island Oil and Refining Company, which was led by his father, Fred Koch, who was on the National Council of the John Birch Society. Charles subsequently opened a John Birch Society bookstore in Wichita with a friend of his father, Bob Love, the owner of the Love Box Company in Wichita, according to Dan Shulman's Sons of Wichita. Mm, the Love Box Company. I hope they weren't making porn. The John Birch Society's American opinion bookstores were stocked with material opposing the civil rights movement, among other things. Birchers had put up billboards in Kansas and elsewhere calling for the impeachment of Earl Warren, the chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, who had ordered the desegregation of public schools in Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. There's no indication that Fred or Charles objected to the Birch campaign to impeach Warren. There is no indication that they objected when it ran ads in Dallas in 1963 with President John F. Kennedy's head depicted like two mugshot photos and the word treason below, shortly before the assassination of the president. Or when it opposed the passage of the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964, based on the Bircher claim that the movement was created as a 40-year front for the communists. The communists. Oh, the communists. Or when it supported billboards calling Martin Luther King a communist. None of these things was cited by Charles Koch and Bob Love in their resignation from the John Birch Society in 1968, according to correspondence with Robert Welch, who had launched the organization a decade earlier with Fred and a few other businessmen. Oddly, it was Welch's win-the-war strategy of signing up people to support the Vietnam War that caused the breakup between Charles Koch and the John Birch Society. In 1968, Charles Koch bought a full-page ad that said, Let's get out of Vietnam now, based on the isolationism of a completing a competing flank of the far-right movement. In his activism, Charles Koch encouraged his brother David to attend a retreat advancing that flank in the Rampart Mountain Range near Colorado Springs, Colorado, to learn at Robert Lefebvre's all-white Freedom School, as noted in Sons of Wichita. Charles joined the board of Lefebvre's anti-union, anti-government operation and funded it. Charles also gave public speeches espousing the view that government's only proper role was to police the interference within the free market, an ideology that inherently rejects child labor laws, minimum wages, or safety rules, the protection of union rights, and more. He began funding Baldy Harper's Institute for Humane Studies. 
Baldy Harper's Institute for Humane Studies. That's uh, correct. Which had been launched in 1961 and which Charles Koch now fully controls. It grooms students and professors who share his libertarian agenda. Generously calling it libertarian. In the early 1970s, it's a misrepresentation, but uh, so be it. In the early 1970s, Charles also created a foundation in his own name to push money to a kind of John Birch Society version 2.0, dubbed the Libertarian Society, to recruit acolytes to limit government power. Interesting uh, parenthetical include. Uh, intro- Intrusion here by myself that the uh, just like Reagan, you know, there's a lot of talk about, oh, big government's bad, big government's bad. But all these people who hate big government love to spend money through the Pentagon, which is the biggest wing of the government uh, that there is and the biggest waste of money that we've got, as Carl Sagan noted 20 years ago. Back to uh, Lisa Graves's article. Uh In 1976, Charles was raising money for the newly created Libertarian Party and hosted a political fundraiser for Roger McBride, who was running for president that year, according to Shulman. In 1977, Charles launched the Libertarian think tank known as the Cato Institute, which began calling for the privatization of Social Security and other public institutions. He also purchased the Libertarian Review and installed a true believer to run it. In the first major relaunch of the magazine, he joined in its call for a, quote, second American revolution, close quote. Most of this Coke spending was unknown to the left, which did not invent the word Coketopus. The truth uh, is that by 1980, so much Charles Coke money was funding so many right-wing operations that it was a fellow libertarian, Sam Konkin, who came up with that moniker, as noted in Brian Doherty's Radicals for Capitalism. In 1979, Charles was asked to run for the White House on the Libertarian ticket, but declined, Schumann wrote. But he did convince his brother David to run for vice president instead. Due to a loophole in campaign finance laws, (laughs) David could give an unlimited amount of his own money to the campaign, which made the party seem larger than it was. Uh, Yeah, that's how the Tea Party keeps it rolling, too. David pledged a half million uh, and spent more. He ran to the right of Ronald Reagan and called for the privatization of Social Security and schools. He was rejected by almost 99% of the Americans who voted in that election. Shortly after that loss, which was the best showing the Libertarian Party had, the Kochs broke with the party and began investing more in operations to influence the Republicans. It was Koch money that founded a Washington, D.C.-based group called Citizens for a Sound Economy and its related foundation with Richard Fink at the helm. Fink, a right-wing economist economist and academic, soon received an appointment to President Ronald Reagan's Commission on Privatization. Through Fink, the Kochs helped create a blueprint for the binge to privatize government that followed. He's now a VP at Koch Industries and helps with their political ambitions. After the Wall Street crash of 1987, while many called for stronger regulation of the stock market to protect the economy, citizens for a sound economy called for the opposite. Despite their name, they are neither citizens nor interested in a sound economy, apparently. It pushed for the elimination of the Glass-Steagall wall of protection between federally insured banks and investing, which it eventually won during the Clinton administration. Fink, by the way, was also a member of the Democratic Leadership Council, which heavily influenced some, but not all, of Bill Clinton's policies. 
1993. In a playbook that may sound familiar, the Citizens for a Sound Economy crushed President Clinton's proposed tax on carbon to help fund alternative energy and reduce what were then called greenhouse gases. Coke money helped spearhead the political defeat of the BTU tax. Uh, British thermal units, that's how much you burn. Although other corporations had been recruited to help fund the group's operations beyond the Cokes. In 1994, Citizens for a Sound Economy also helped take down the Clintons' efforts to reform health care, funding an array of activities to defeat it. It was in 1996, however, when the Cokes were first poised to influence election outcomes big time. And I'll stop right there because there's just a few minutes remaining in the program. And I'd like to remind you that you are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. The program here is Gray Matters. And we'll be bringing you Yazoo City Calling in uh, just a short while. The uh, down-home blues will be coming your way in just a matter of minutes. If I can quickly find... The Four Big Lies About Inequality to share with you in the course of one minute. This is an article by Robert Reich, who, of course, was Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration, currently teaching at University of California, Berkeley. And uh, he has a very short little piece in which he uh, denounces these quick four lies. Number one, the rich and CEOs are America's job creators, so we dare not tax them. The truth is the middle class and poor are the job creators through their purchase of goods and services. If they don't have enough purchasing power because they're not paid enough, companies won't create more jobs and the economy won't grow. We've endured the most anemic recovery on record because most Americans don't have enough money to get the economy out of first gear. The economy is barely growing and real wages continue to drop. Talk to a local Ann Arbor teacher. They've all just experienced a uh, backdoor wage cut when uh, no wage increases were offered. They haven't had a wage increase in a number of years, uh, and the cost of their benefits went up. So that's an out-of-pocket thing. Their pay has dropped. Uh, that's a skilled trade. Uh, that's a professional gig, uh, and uh, when professional people's incomes are being cut piecemeal, as that may be, their spending power diminishes, and local businesses uh, have fewer sales. So this idea that simply because you're a business owner means you are a job creator and hands off you uh, is indeed ridiculous. Uh, again, Robert Reich politely calls these lies. Uh, I think uh, Jake Blues, Elwood Blues, uh, might uh, more accurately uh, characterize them as uh, bullshit. And I think uh, I would agree with him on that. Well, it's 7.01. It's uh, WCBN-FM Ann Arbor is tuned up on your radio dial. Stay tuned uh, to Yazoo City Calling coming up next on this frequency. Uh, I'll be back next week with another program. And I'll remind everybody that uh, the views and opinions that I have uttered are merely my own and do not represent the views of anyone else necessarily here at WCBN or... Uh, well, you might agree with me, you might not. I think that's up to you. But the blues are coming up next, and so stay tuned for that. Everybody can get behind the blues. It's going to see you through the tough times. So stay tuned for that in just a moment.